Amen. You can be seated this morning. Let our worship team know how blessed you were by them. We are thankful that people get up here every week and take time out of their schedule to lead us into the presence of God. Amen? We're thankful for that. I'm going to jump straight in um, and try not to waste any of the time that I know Brother Dwayne's going to tease me for taking too much of. So, I'm just kidding. You ready to go? Can we just go? All right, no pleasantries, let's just go. I want to talk to you this morning. I don't have a fancy title like I normally would. I thought and thought and thought, couldn't think of anything. So I just want to talk to you about something, and we'll see if we can tie it all together at the end. And it is this. It's the kingdom. Just the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, whatever you want to call it. Jesus often just referred to it as the kingdom. And specifically, I want to talk to you about prayer and what that looks like for kingdom people and what it looks like when people who are a part of the kingdom are in prayer and who are seeking God the way that the kingdom tells them to. So, and see, I think, I think a lot of times when we talk about prayer, we, uh, we, we kind of go at it wrong. And, and it's sort of like, see, the thing I, I'm hoping that you get before I'm done today, prayer and, and living in, in kingdom power and what Jesus left for us, it, it is not nearly as much about your effort as it is about understanding and about applying the proper, the, the keys or the faith or the strat, whatever you want to call it, what the word lays out for us. Because I, I think a lot of times it's not that we don't pray. I think it's just that we pray because we haven't fully understood it. We sometimes pray poorly and we pray at random. And it's kind of like when we pray for God to do something and it doesn't happen and we haven't seen it, God's not doing what we think he ought to do. And we go to, you know, maybe somebody that's supposed to be a little bit better Christian than us. And they'll say things to you like, well, just pray harder. That, that doesn't do a lot. I don't know if you have ever given that advice. If that's your advice, please stop. That's, that didn't help me any when somebody told me that. No, y'all had never been there. You've prayed and prayed. Brother Rigney, you've been there before. You prayed all that you knew to pray, and then you asked somebody what's not, why it's not happening, and they said, pray harder. So is our logic that if we are doing something incorrectly and it's not working, we just do it harder? Do you do that in any other area of your life? If you're, if you're, if you're trying to run a business and you are managing it poorly and you are going bankrupt, you just do it harder? Does that make sense to anybody? Sometimes it's not that we're doing it with not enough effort. Sometimes the problem is we're doing it incorrectly. And I did not come here to try and tell every saint in this building that you pray wrong and I pray right. Please do not hear that. That is not my point. I do not have it figured out that well. I wish I did. But that is not the sermon for me to preach. Somebody with a little bit more authority on this matter, a little bit more experience need to talk about that. But what I want to talk to you about is the logic behind it, because I'm afraid we do that a lot, that, that if it's not working, we say, well, just pray harder, or just pray longer, or just pray this way or that way, or do this and do that. And, and I want to look at a verse <clears throat> that Jesus laid out for us when he started talking about, pr about prayer and about the kingdom and about what it's supposed to look like. So let me read this to you. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 7. If you've got it, you can turn there real quick. Luke chapter 18, 1 through 7. For time's sake, I'm just going to jump in because it's on the screen. So the Bible says this, Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that, the men, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. 
saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me and from, from my adversary. And he would not for a long while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, and I do not regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I'm going to avenge her, unless by her continual coming to me she weary me or worry me. Any husbands ever had a wife just keep coming to you and just weary you? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's okay. You needed to laugh. I felt it. Anyway, and then Jesus says this, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge just said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night, though he bears long with them? Now, now I started out talking about kingdom and about what that looks like. And the thing is, when we talk about kingdom, it is often the case that people get nervous because we don't talk about it enough, so we don't know what it is. So then we see people who do talk about it a lot, and they're really weird. And they're talking about it wrong. <laughs> They're taking it and trying to apply it to all these different things. It's not kingdom to tell you that if you'll give me $1,000, God will give you 1000 back. Sorry. It's not kingdom for me to tell you that if you'll send me an envelope full of all your money, I'll send you back a bottle of oil, and that oil is going to heal you, even though nobody else's prayers could. In my little bottle of oil, that's not kingdom. I know you hear a lot of people who do stuff like that talk about the kingdom, but that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is something entirely different. It's something Jesus talked a lot. And see, our goal is not to be weird. But our goal is to be the church that Jesus intended us to be. One of us, praise God, one person wants to be what Jesus wants us to be. That, that is our goal, is to be the church that Jesus wants us to be. And, and so to get that, I want to show you something real quick, and then we'll get back into it. See, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and heaven are not the same place. When people talk about heaven... And then they talk about the kingdom of God. Those are two different things. That, that's not what it's talking about. When, when you see Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven, he is not talking about a place or a location. It's a reference to the expansiveness and, and the magnitude or the degree to which God is in control. It's not a comment about, about God's literal heaven, his kingdom that he lives in right now. That is, that's not what it's talking about when it says the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a place, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's not somewhere that we're, it's not that I have to get rapture ready so that I can encounter the kingdom when God finally calls us home. That's not the kingdom. That is poor theology if that's what we're believing. The kingdom of God is actually living like Jesus did on the earth every day that I'm on the earth. That's kingdom. That's what we want to be. And it's important that you understand this because, see, what you need to know is Jesus in the, in the gospel of Matthew the gospel writer who continually wanted to uh, uh, put out the idea that Jesus was king. In that gospel, he recorded moments where Jesus talked about the kingdom 32 times. Y'all, there's only 28 chapters in that book. And three of those chapters, Jesus wasn't talking because he wasn't even doing his ministry yet. So in 25 chapters, Jesus talked about the kingdom 32 times. And if you know Jesus, Jesus was long-winded. Normally one story took a chapter. I'm just trying to be like Jesus, y'all. <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> I 
he mentioned the kingdom a lot. So something tells me that the kingdom is important. Are we on the same page there? Would we agree with that? And we'll see things in Scripture where it says stuff like, those shall not inherit the kingdom of God, or this is how you inherit the kingdom of God. We'll hear all of these things being talked about. And, and when we look at that, what, what you need to understand is that eternal life is a free gift, right? Bought by Jesus, given to us if we ask for it. It's not a wage. It's not an earning. It's not something that I have to pursue to get. It's, I just ask and there it is. So when he talks about this, he's obviously not talking about heaven. He's not talking about his location. He's talking about his authority. And this is why the kingdom is important when we decide to talk about prayer because what you have to understand is that every kingdom has a king. And in this kingdom, your father is the king. That should probably influence the way that we pray. That should probably influence the way that we talk to God, the way that we live our life, is understanding that I'm part of a kingdom, and not only am I part of a kingdom, but I'm a joint heir with the son of the king because he died on a cross to make me like him. That should have a part in how I talk to him. Shouldn't be, well, Father, you know, I'd sure like for you to deal with this issue. If it's not too much trouble, it's not too much. Be back in a month or two to see if you took care of that. <laughs> That's not how you pray when you want something from your father. It should be an influence to us. But many of us, what, I, what I'm observing and what I'm afraid of is most of us mope around in this Christianity that is so defeated and so we act like we are, are servants to somebody and we're less than and not good enough and, and, and we walk around beaten down and, and defeated already. And it's poor theology, and what I'm afraid of is that not only do we not have good theology, I think we pretty much only have devilology. Because if we walk in the church, I hear more people talking about the devil than I ever hear them talking about Jesus. No? You don't? Okay. I hear a lot of churches where we talk about the devil. And I'm afraid that in most churches, if you removed the ability to preach about the devil, you'd remove 80% of the preaching material. Maybe y'all ain't visited some other churches like I have. There's a lot of that going on. And, and you go in church, and even if you don't go in other churches, you just turn on your TV. Or you listen to other preachers in churches, and what you're going to find, and I'm not up here to condemn it. Look, I am aware of my age and my inexperience. Don't think that I'm up here to tell everybody I got it all figured out. But from Scripture, there's a couple things I can learn and that we can see. And I see a lot of people walking around, and when I listen to what they're talking about, it's all about these rent. It's like, if you want to do this, you know, then you got to live this way. If you want to bind the devil, then do this. And if you want to tell the devil, tell the devil this, and put your finger in the devil's face, and put the devil under your feet in three easy steps, and here's your spiritual warfare guide, and here's this and that, all this stuff. And to a degree, that's okay. I believe we do experience spiritual warfare. But the trick is how you are experiencing it. Because you and I have got to understand that we do not fight this thing for a victory. We fight it from a victory. <clears throat> now that sounds good. And a few, a few people, amen, but, but you've got to understand it, that, that we literally do not fight to try and beat the devil. Your job when you get up in the morning and want to serve Jesus is not, can I beat the devil today? 
The devil has already been defeated. The cross was the ultimate victory against our enemy. It was to the point that Colossians 1 said, Jesus made an open shame of him. He mocked him. He put him out in front of others and said, look at how pathetic he is. He thought he could win, but he cannot. He made an open shame of your enemy when he died on the cross and resurrected from the dead. There was one thing that God allowed Satan to have control over after the fall. It was the keys to death, hell, and the grave. But when Jesus died on the cross, it said that he descended into the lower parts of the earth, into hell, took back the keys to death, hell, and the grave. The one thing that the devil thought he had a hold on, God already claimed it back. We are not going to try and beat an enemy. The enemy is already beaten. So how arrogant would it be for you and for I to assume there is anything that my life could do to inflict greater damage on the enemy than what the cross already did? And yet we pray in that way many times. We pray like if I'll just, you know, if I'll just stick it to the devil real good this time, I'll win. What? Stop treating him like he's got that much authority. I, now I, I understand this sounds crazy to some people, and you're not really sure where we're going with this, but I promise you that, that, that there's a point. See, here's, here's the difference, because it all sounds good when you talk about we don't fight from victory, for victory, we fight from victory. That sounds great, and everybody who's real church, you'll shout. But it doesn't always make sense to us. So here's the difference, because you've got to understand this and apply it or else it does us no good. Right? Surely you don't think that the Bible not applied does you any good. You can quote Scripture all day long, but if you don't know how to apply it, that's... The devil doesn't care how many verses you memorize. As <laughs> long as you don't know how to use it. I, what, I'm, I'm about to waste a little bit of time. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> What did Paul call this in Ephesians when he listed the armor of God? Sword, right? You know what I'm not afraid of? A two-year-old with a sword. They probably can't even swing it. They have no idea how to handle the weapon. You know what I am afraid of? Somebody who's been trained how to use it. I would not want to go after somebody that, that was fully aware of how to operate one, use one, control one. I, I wouldn't want to mess with that person. But if, if it was an infant and we just handed them a sword, they're not, they're not a threat just because there's a sword laying in their lap. They're more of a threat to their self than they are to me. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Let me give you a verse. This is why this matters, okay? Luke chapter 19, verse 13, the Bible says this. So he called ten of his servants. This is Jesus telling a parable about a nobleman. He delivered to them ten talents or ten uh, uh, pieces of money, whatever you want to call it. And he said to them, do business until I come. But there's a King James translation that says it like this. He called his ten servants and delivered to them ten pounds. And he said unto them, occupy until I come. Jesus is speaking a parable about the kingdom in this particular scripture. And he says that this master is going to go away. And then he's going to come back, and until he comes back, occupy. That didn't bless you at all, did it? Let me help you. <laughs> Think of it like this. When we got into the Iraq War, your take on that war is of no 
matter right now if you think it was good or bad. That has nothing to do with this illustration, so lose that. Put your politics aside. Just listen. When we got into that war, we pulled down the statue of Saddam Hussein in three days. Oh, after three days of war, his army had been defeated, he was on the run, and the statue or, or the symbol of his oppression had been pulled down and destroyed in the streets. Three days. But we were in that war for ten years. Do you know why? I know you may, hold on, don't say anything. You may have different opinions. <laughs> Let me tell you why as it fits my sermon. <laughs> Here's why. Because we were trying to occupy until the desired form of government had been thoroughly established. So the war was won in three days. But it took us ten years to fully occupy and get it set up like it needed to be. And the same is true that in our life, Jesus won a victory in a moment. This is not some perpetual fight between God and the devil where he's trying to fix it. God already won the victory. You do fight from victory. But here's the thing. In that war, they pulled the statue down. They had already won. They just had to occupy. Now look, while they were occupying, some of our men were still getting shot. They were still getting injured. They were still fighting back attackers. But the fact was they had already taken over that piece of property. They were just occupying until it was set up thoroughly. That government was established. Be the same as in this story when Jesus said the nobleman left his servants there. He had a piece of property. Had somebody else come in and tried to set up camp on his property, it would have been the assignment of those servants to go and say, you can't stay here. This property has already been claimed. This has already been given to us. And on the authority of our master, you've got to go because we are occupying this place. There are 66 books in the Bible filled with promises. All that we have to do is occupy the promises that have already been given. We're not called to try and fight for it. There is, hmm. We're not called to fight for it. There's promises of peace, of joy, of healing, of restoration, of salvation, uh, of all of these different things in the book. So how do we know that this is what Jesus did for us? How do we know that that's what it's supposed to be? Let me help you. I, I'm, I'm going to move through it, okay? You ready? We would all agree that Adam and Eve sinned and then humanity fell, right? We were cursed, Genesis 3. Everybody got that? We would all agree that the work of Jesus was to destroy the curse, right? Galatians 3.13, Paul said that he actually became a curse for us because it's written, everybody who dies on a tree, cursed is that man. So he became a curse for us to break the curse that was put on us. So all the way back in Genesis, God comes down and lines up all of these animals in front of Adam and these trees and plants and all this stuff, and he says, call it. And whatever you call it, that's what it is. God said, you just tell them what it is, and I'm going to back you up with my authority. Now this is where it gets dicey. This is not a name it and claim it theology or you can blab it and grab it. That is not how it works. That's not what the concept is. The concept is God gave him authority for that task and said, do it and I'll back you up. Here's how it applied to us. God gave us authority because it says he laid hand on the 12 and sent them out to do the work. 
Then they came back and he laid hands on the 70 and sent them out to do the work. And then as he's getting ready to be taken back into heaven, it says that he left us with a great commission. He said, go out and do what I did. He said, greater things or more things like what I did, you're going to do. Go out and do them. That's the kingdom. So the, the trick of the kingdom is not trying to twist God's arm into some certain thing. It's understanding that God has already given us victory, and now we just go and live like we got victory. I'm going to cut a bunch of stuff out, all right? That worked for you? I'm sure everybody would be happy there. So, let's jump back to Luke 18. Jesus starts talking about prayer, and he says there's a certain woman there, and she went to a judge. Now, did you catch it? In that moment, Jesus says in the verse before, verse 1, he says, every man ought to pray always. And as he starts talking about prayer, immediately after that in verse 2, he says, there was a woman, and she went to a judge. He immediately removed the question of your effort and my effort. Right? Because, I don't know if you know this or not, but a courtroom works a little different than a battlefield. Right? Now, if you've been in a bad court case, you may not agree with that. But, <clears throat> but courtrooms are supposed to work different. Now, see, we have repeatedly been taught all about spiritual warfare and about how we got to take up our weapons and we got to fight this thing. That is true. I'm not telling you that. It's how you're doing it, though. We do take up weapons. We do all of those things. But when you go into a courtroom, you don't have to walk in and wage war. You go in with the necessary evidence and protocols and you win because a judge just makes a decision. There's not a battle in a courtroom. There's just a decision. So if you go in and the judge says you won, you win. Right? Let me help you with it. New Testament, all the way through it, is courtroom language. It is used in courtroom language constantly. It talks about how in the courtroom there is a righteous judge. It talks about how there's a cloud of witnesses. There's a mediator between us that is Jesus, like our defense attorney. There's a witness that is the testimony of the blood. There is an accuser of the brethren, a prosecuting attorney that is called Satan. It's like a courtroom. So the accuser, the prosecutor, comes in and starts leveling all of these charges against you and against me for why our prayers don't deserve to be answered. And he's telling the righteous judge, this is why you can't answer that. They did this. They were that. They went here. They said this. They did that with that person. They did this to this person. They were all of these different things. They don't deserve for their prayers to be answered. <laughs> but then the judge gives a, a, a stay to the to the prosecuting attorney and lets the defense speak. And the defense says, Your Honor, everything that liar just said is made irrelevant by my new piece of evidence. And he lays down and points to the blood. That, that is salvation. That's when it works. If you want to get saved, it's not that you've got to fight to get saved. You say, I want to get saved. And Jesus says, Your Honor, there's a new piece of evidence being admitted. It is the blood. Everything that they did, everything that they used to be, everything they once said, all of the garbage that was going on is no more because it's covered by the blood. This is too churchy for somebody this morning. I can just tell. But see, 
There is the blood of Jesus that is our witness. That's why in Revelation 5, it called him the faithful witness. That's why it said, I've got one that stands up for me and tells the truth of my situation. That's why it said in Hebrews chapter 12 that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. My witness, my mediator, my friend is Jesus, and he goes into the courtroom with me so my adversary can keep on telling all of those stories, but the judge doesn't have to believe it because my faithful witness stands up and says, that, that doesn't even matter anymore. I got a new witness to call. Let the, let the blood get on the stand. That doesn't even matter anymore. Let the blood get on the stand. So let, let, let me move it through. Here, here, here we go. Let me move through this real quick. So Daniel, chapter 7. We're going to jump back to the Old Testament real quick. The Bible says this in Daniel. If I can get my Bible to cooperate. Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. The Bible says this. <clears throat> Daniel's caught up in a vision. It says, I watched until the thrones were all put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like a pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheel a burning fire. A fiery stream issued out from it and came forth from before him, and a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. So Daniel gets caught up into heaven, and the first thing that Daniel sees when he gets to heaven is not a party, it's not a church, it's not a healing and miracle service. It's a courtroom. And as he's caught up into it, he sees a courtroom, and in the courtroom there are books. What's in the books? Now, I can't tell you for sure, because I haven't been there. But what I would bank, it, bank on is Psalm 139, and verse 16 and 17 says this, God, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all written. The days fashioned for me, when even though they were not yet, the Bible says, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them. What's in the book? All my days. What's in the book? All your days. What's in the book? The days of everyone that has ever lived. There is a book of, of my life that was written before I ever existed where God saw me and started writing out who I would be and what I would do. There is a book about you that was written before you ever made a bad choice, before you ever did a wrong thing. There was a book being written about you. I am not the product of a romantic encounter between my parents. I am the product of an author who sat down and penned out with purpose every page of my life. Hmm. He created me and he created you. Now, now there's, there's a difference in being created and being made. So we'll just quickly, to create something means to make it from nothing. To make something means I take pieces of other things and... and create it, right? So you know where something comes from because of what it goes back to. When we die, our bodies go back to being dirt. You know why? Because in Genesis 2, it says that God formed together our body out of dust, breathed life into it, but then when we're done with it, it goes back to what it was. 
but not my spirit. My spirit goes back to him because it was created by him. It's a part of him. I wish I had time to hand you Bible on all of these things. I'm just trying to make sure we, we get it. Though. See, my spirit came from God, but my carnal mind came from a tree in a garden when a man and a woman ate a piece of fruit that they had no business eating. You wonder, why well, if God made me, why do I want to do all these wrong things? Why is it so hard to live right? Because part of you is him and part of you is evil. The heart of man is desperately wicked. That's what the Bible says. So, and, and see, this is the thing. This is what I need you to understand. I'm going to mess somebody's theology up. The enemy of God is not the devil. The enemy of God is your wrong mind. The enemy of God is not Satan. This is not some cosmic battle where God's over here and he's just a little bit bigger than the devil that's over here. And they are just pounding out after all of these ages. You done watch one too many Star Wars shows, baby. This does not take nine episodes. It happened in one minute. Jesus said, it is finished. Satan was defeated. It didn't take nine chapters. It was quick. It was a moment. It's not some ongoing battle between the dark and the light and the good and the evil. We see too many TV shows and it messes up the way we view Scripture. That's not the way God wrote the book. God wrote the book and there was an enemy that he allowed to have power for a moment, but then he came to an earth, died on a cross, and took back the keys and claimed all power again. God already defeated the devil. So yes, is the devil against God? Absolutely. But God's not worried about God, about the devil. He's already beaten him. It, I remember being on football teams in high school. I never once got worried about the team we had already beaten last week. They were already beaten. We didn't have to play them again. We won. It's already marked down in the record, but right? No? Okay. Making sure I understood the game. If not, I was real confused all through high school. I think that's how it worked. If we already beat them, it was done. So, I understand. Don't get there and get technical. I just saw somebody looking at me trying to lean over and tell somebody, yes, I understand there's repeat games. Just follow the illustration. I ain't got time to go there. But God's enemy is not the devil. He already beat him. Your, the enemy of God is your carnal mind. That's why Romans declared in chapter 8, I believe it's verse 5, 6, 7, it's 7. It says that the carnal mind is an enemy of or at enmity with God. It is his enemy now. It's not the devil. The devil is still trying to fight God, but he's already been beaten. The only thing fighting the plan of God in your life now is wrong thinking. The thing that we are fighting now is an enemy who comes and whispers into our mind. He can't whisper anything into the mind of God. He's already lost to God. So now he comes in and whispers corrupt thinking into our mind and tries to talk us out of kingdom living. There's one more verse in Psalm chapter 40 I want to show you real quick. Psalm 40. Have I made any sense yet? I feel like I am rambling like some science nerd. I just figured out the... Okay, good. I, I wasn't trying to do that. I, probably, I just need to make sure I felt like... Y'all ever watched the... Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Psalm chapter 40, verse 6 through 8. The Bible says this. It's a prophecy of Jesus, in case you're not sure. It says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears have you opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require, because Jesus was the one-time offering, right? Verse 7. Then I said, this is Jesus, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. 
Before the beginning of time, look, we all came from God with a story. Jesus even came with a story and an assignment. That's why when he's walking, all of a sudden he says, wait, I must needs go through Samaria. I've got to go through there because it's in the book. And when God wrote the book, it included all the miracles and all the wonders and all of the salvation and all the good things, but it also included the Garden of Gethsemane. It also included the temptation in the wilderness. All of those things were in the book, and your pain is traumatic if you don't understand that it's in the book. But when I live from a place where I understand that even the bad things God has written into the book and can use them, and that's why I get to say all things work together for good. See, sometimes God's no can be just as powerful as God's Yes, what are you talking about? That doesn't even make sense. Let me help you again. If you realize that, if you think about it like this, if you think that your life is some random happenstance with a little Jesus sprinkled on top, then yes, every bad day you ever have is a problem. And it is called for a breakdown and you need to pop a Xanax and sit in a corner and cry till it's all over. Every one of them. But if you understand that your life was pinned out by God with purpose so to give you a hope and a future before you were ever born, then suddenly those days don't seem as bad. Am I telling you we don't go through hard things? Absolutely not. That would be the stupidest thing I could ever say with some of the situations that people in this family are facing. That is not my point. My point is that when I face them, I face them from victory, not trying to earn a victory. And when I pray, that's how I've got to start praying. I'm, okay, here we go. Let me give you one more thing, all right, and then I promise I'm shutting up. Romans 8, 28 through 30. The Bible says this. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, who he predestined, those he also called. Who he called, these he also justified, and who he justified, those he also glorified. There are five parts of this thing that all come into play if you want to do what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. Because remember, he prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven not in heaven once i get to heaven there is a will of god destined for your life on the earth that you get to be a part of and this is what the bible says it says those that he foreknew he predestined for this plan who did he foreknow everybody if your god knew you and not me i don't want your god he's not as smart as you said But if he is what the scripture says, and he is, and he knew every one of us before we ever lived a day, that's a guy I can trust. So he foreknew us. He also predestined us. That is not fate. Everything is not happenstance. It's not random things that are going on. It is not fate. It is a plan of God. The plan is his. But whether or not it happens is on us. He starts, see, this is the thing about God. He starts over here at the end of your story. This is you. You have lived your life. You have found Christ. You have died. You have now gone to heaven. He starts here. 
and starts writing backwards to the beginning of it all so that he can weave together every detail that gets you to the place you needed to go that is here. That's how your story's laid out in heaven. And God opens a book and looks at it and sees your life because it's what he wrote. But the problem is sometimes we want to start taking the pen and the eraser and stuff. We start scribbling in our own details, trying to make little shorthand notes in there and said, well, God said this, but... We live that way sometimes. So that's one is that <coughs> one is that he foreknew us. Two is that he predestined us. There's five parts of it. Three is that he called us. Now, now this is the thing about being called. Everybody has a book and a plan. The plan is calling you. See, it's not just preachers. It's not just singers and worship leaders and Sunday school teachers. It is every single person that has accepted Jesus as Savior. There is a plan and a call on your life. You can be called to do something other than hold a microphone. You can be called to be a doctor. You can be called to run a business. You can be called to take care of animals or babies or, or to whatever you want. You can be called to all sorts of different things. It's not one generic, narrow thing. That's not what God intended. Paul made tents. He still wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, laid hands on sick people all the time, even raised a dead man or two. And he had a job. He didn't just preach. You have been called by God, and this is the thing, is that God wrote the book up here, and you're down here, but there is a calling that is coming down, dragging you up higher to the place that God has designed for you to be. Jesus said in Psalm 40, verse 8, when he talked about that spot where he said that, that, your, uh, that, that your law is written in my heart and all these things, he said all this stuff, and, and he talked about how God's law is written in his heart, the plan's already written in his heart. And what you've got to understand is that your heart is not just the, the blood pump, the muscle in your chest. Not when the Bible's talking. I understand that medically speaking, your heart is the whole, the thump, the thump. I get that. But when the Bible's talking, that's not the word it uses. It says heart, but what it really means is that inward place of passion. That's what the word translates to be. It is an inward place of passion. So the thing is, we've got people who are living their entire life and they're trying to silence their passion. Because they don't see a way to get into that. They don't want to do that. They're not sure. They think that's weird. Nobody's going to help them do that. Nobody will believe it if they tell them that they feel like that's what God said to do. But we've got people who keep ignoring their passion. And the thing is, you need to be running as hard as you can after your passion. Because your passion is the thing that God put you here to do. That's why so many people are so miserable. You're worried about earning a living and God's worried about you living a life. I know you got to pay bills. I'm not so stupid. Look, I got them too. I wish I could send them back. They don't take them. Every time I mail them back, they send them again. I don't know. I understand. That's not what I'm talking about. But God had a call and a plan on your life before you ever decided to take a breath. And the thing is, your passion is a clue to what God intended to be done by you. Look at, look at Moses in the book of Exodus. He is an Egyptian king or, or leader, by birth, or not by birth, but by this birthright that he now has. He's been taken in culturally to an Egyptian family. But God wrote a story. See, and according to what his days had been, 
He was an Egyptian. He was a leader. He was in line with the royal family. But when he saw an Egyptian murder a Hebrew and start beating on a Hebrew, he decided something in his passion got stirred up. And he went and killed the Egyptian when he's supposed to be an Egyptian. Because his passion boiled up on the inside of him. Here's the thing. Your passion is a good indicator of what God wants you to do. So I'm not talking about angry as far as getting in a rage and a riot, but the thing that stirs you up and gets you heated, that's the thing God puts you here to change. Like, I won't take a lot of time, but I'll give you my two. This is how I know, this is how I know beyond the shadow of a doubt what God called me to do. Because I know what two things get me the most fired up. There's two of them. One is equality for all, especially in the church, but even in our world and in our city. Because look, I, I am sick and tired of, of us wanting to be a church, not this church, but the church, wanting to look at women and say, hey, we need you to teach Sunday school. We need you to lead the singing. We need you to do this or do that. But don't think you can get up there and hold that microphone and instruct our lives. We let them lead every other part of the service, but we don't want them leading that part. Why? Because we don't want them to be equal. Don't get me started on... You want to tick me off, come up and say something stupid and racist. We will go toe-to-toe -to -toe right there. Just say something dumb and prejudiced. I promise you, you will see passion ignite right then. Can't stand it. Why? Because I know it's something I'm called to change. I know it's something that God's called this church to change. I know it's something that we can affect and we can do different. So the thing that ignites passion on the inside of you is the thing God puts you here to do something about. If the thing that lights your, just gets you all fired up is seeing kids who are not taken care of, start finding out how to help take care of kids. If the thing that gets you going is, for me, one other one that gets me is wanting to raise up other leaders from this younger generation. Because I remember what it was to be 15 and say that I wanted to preach and I was no longer cool. At all. Not even a little. I was very uncool before that. I was less cool after that. <laughs> I remember what it was to be 17, 18-year-olds and refuse to go to see the movie that everybody else went to see or go do the thing everybody else went to do or, or do things while people were dating that others were saying was the thing to do. And I remember being laughed at. I remember even being made fun of by church leaders. I remember leaders telling church leaders who believe like us telling us things like, well, boys are just going to be boys. You just got... And I was not lifted up and emboldened in what I had said I felt like God told me to do. I was belittled. So if you want to get me mad, come up and talk to me about how this next generation is just, there's nothing to them, these millennials, these Gen Zs, this and that, whatever. They're worthless, they're useless, they don't have any, you know, they don't have any drive, they don't have any abilities. They're, if you want to get me ignited, do that. And I will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you right then and hope to God I'm sanctified enough not to slap you. Because there is something in me that gets ignited when we go against the thing that God put passion in me, and you are the same way. You've got the same thing in you. you just got to find what it is. For Abby, my wife loves teaching kids. She loves to help younger next generation. That's why she's a teacher. It's what she lives and loves to do. They may make her want to pull her hair out some days, but she loves it. I, on the other hand, am not so gracious. 
If you see me teaching a class of five, six, seven, eight-year-olds, call somebody. It's not a good idea. Put anybody else in there. It's not me. <laughs> you got to go with your passion. And then here, I'm going to give you these last two together. It says he justified and he glorified. What that really means is that he gave them authority. Because justification is vindication, right? It's, saying, it's putting a stamp of approval on something and saying that's okay. And if God gives you justification and glorification, what he's doing is saying that this is my stamp, they're okay. That, that's good. That's what I want. And the way that you get that is you understand that he knew you before time. You understand that he predestined you. And not only did he predestine you, but he had a purpose, a plan, and he called you. And then if you accept the calling, he gives you the justification that says, they can do that because that's what I put in them. They can change that because that's what I put in them. They can be justified to go out and change that thing. That's what I put them here for. That's what I wrote in their story. And this is the thing. I know I traveled from prayer through this whole kingdom thing, but this is the thing about kingdom living is your life's not an accident. There's purpose in you. And look, I had a lot of different New Year's Eve type messages that I wanted to preach. Had several things laid out about, you know, saying goodbye to the previous year and about, you know, praising your way out. There were several things I thought about. None of them fit. None of them sat right. Because if there's any prayer that I could pray over our church and over you as an individual, if there's any prayer I do pray, pretty much daily, but definitely often, is that in this next year we would become a church that's like the kingdom. And that we would become people that are people of the kingdom. That doesn't mean weird. That doesn't mean crazy. That doesn't mean that you've got to walk through Walmart and fall out and flop in the middle of the aisle. But it does mean you can walk through Walmart and notice that the Lord just speak to you and say, hand them that $100 bill you've been sitting on to go eat out on. You can be walking through Walmart and God just tell you as you're, you're going through the restaurant even and you see somebody sitting over there and the Lord says, there's something not right. Just ask them if you can pray for them. Just go over there and tell them I still love them. You can be pricked in your heart in those ways because you're a kingdom person. And I challenge you and I pray for you that we become kingdom people. Let this be the year. Stand up with me. Let this be the year that we as a church become people of the kingdom. I just want to pray. I know you're ready to go. I know we had a, had a long day with, you know, kids singing and worship and me talking for, I know we had all that stuff, but can I just pray for you real quick and we'll just see what God does from there, but let's, Jesus, I pray for every man, every woman, every teenager, every boy, every girl that's in this house right now, Jesus. You knew them. And you know every step, everything, every bit of every day. You already knew it. So God, I know that. And you know that. Now, God, I pray that you let that revelation hit deep on the inside of our people this morning, God. Bless them with the understanding. Oh, not understanding because we don't educate enough or smart enough, God, but the understanding because sometimes life gets crazy. 
Sometimes life sticks blinders on us. Sometimes the enemy starts whispering, trying to corrupt our mind, God. Just give them that fresh understanding and revelation that you have a plan for their life, God, that you have spoken good things over their life, that they have hope and that they have future because you love them, because you called them. God, let them leave this place today knowing that this is not a fight to try and earn a victory. This is a fight from a victory, God. This is a fight to occupy what you already gave us. It's a fight to occupy healing that you already promised. It's a fight to occupy the peace that you already promised. It's a fight to occupy the goodness of God in our life that you've already promised, Lord. Oh, God, this isn't a fight to try and prove how good we are or to get you to love us. We're fighting because you love us. Oh, God, this is a fight that we step into because we've got a good God and a good Father who pinned out every moment, every minute of our lives. And, God, we want to live for you like you called us. Oh, God, I pray over this people today, Lord. The words that you wrote in your book in heaven, God, let them start calling us higher this morning. Let it start calling us higher this morning, God. Let it call us into higher worship. Let it call us into a higher relationship with you, God. Let it call us into a higher manifestation of your presence and your power in our lives, Jesus. Call us deeper, God. Call us deeper, God. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Sister Dorothy, you just lead us in worship for just a minute or two, and here's what we're going to do. If you've got anything that you want to pray about, anything that you need from the Lord, if there's something that you would like to set your foot on the head of in 2020 and take back victory over, not because you've got to earn it, but because now you understand, Jesus already bought this. Why am I even fighting for this? He already gave me this. Why am I sitting here struggling and cowering less than to a devil that's already been defeated? If you want to pray about something from that revelation, you can make your way down to this altar. We'll pray with you. We're going to worship for just a minute, and then we'll dismiss, all right? Just take us in worship. Let's, let's, just, let's just give Jesus the worship he desires for a minute. And if you want something, I promise you we're going to let you go. If you need something from God, step out of the aisle right now. We're going to have prayer leaders down here to meet you and pray with you. Go ahead. You just go.